And you can be turning open to Revelation chapter 2. It's where we'll be in the Word this morning. Um, just as we, just a, a matter of a signal for you to love on Jordan Richard today. This is Jordan's last Sunday with us. For a while, she is relocating to Orlando. Um, and so we were excited for her. She's excited. She was like, I'm not even nervous. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> but we trust she is uh, going into the next step of, uh, and season that the Lord has for her. And so, Jordan, thanks so much for your faithfulness to the church. Uh, just faithfulness to, to the Lord. Amen. Amen. You've blessed us very well. All right. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at the letter, uh, the first of seven letters as addressed to the church in Ephesus. And if you remember, um, these, are, these letters are written in a way uh, that maybe John would have. He, was, he resided in Ephesus before he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Um, he may have used this as his trip because it, it, the way that these letters are written, it goes around uh, kind of in a... a clockwise circle. So his pastoral heart is in that. Jesus is connecting with John's pastoral heart. But these, these letters are important for us. If we look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is what we'll consider this morning. The Word of God says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Holy Spirit, please gift us with your illumination so we might see Jesus together. Amen. Uh, we've all heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, it's actually a phrase that's been around since the Roman Empire. I didn't realize it went back that far. The, the people in Ephesus may have known that phrase. But the expression is supposed to describe the strange way that as we grow in our knowledge and experience of something, the more we dislike it, the more we treat it with contempt, it's more, it's irritable. Or the more we know something and get used to it, we're indifferent toward it. The more we become used to something, the less thrill we have doing it, and so we lose the desire. We know this occurs in relationships. It occurs in the workplace with jobs. And it occurs in the church. We find that when the thrill runs out, we do things out of duty that lack delight. Jesus sent a message to the Ephesian church to express the danger of their familiarity, but more casualness 
with him. Their church experience was missing the power, the proper power supply. And we will see that they're, they're doing a lot of things right. Things that every church of Jesus should endeavor to do. And it seems that they're doing these things disconnected from the power source. Their works are not plugged into Jesus to experience the flow of his spirit in their service that happens in the church. You know, the Puritans a few hundred years ago had a concept to explain how our Christian experience is connected. It, it goes from head, heart, hand. The truths of God start in the head and the mind. They sink down into the heart and are evidenced in our service, our, our hands to one another. The revelation of Jesus engages the mind and then captures our affections in order to empower our service. And the Ephesians were engaging the head better than anybody else but we'll find that their hearts were disconnected, which made their service to the Lord and to one another weak. When the head is disconnected from the heart, this can be known as the Ephesians syndrome. Jesus loves his church too much to let us go through the motions without his power. Jesus' love for his church, it affects the mission of his church. So this morning, our, our concept to consider is this. Jesus is speaking to us in this message to the Ephesian church, to capture our affections once again for him so our service is empowered by his spirit. We see in the first, uh, the, the, the first verse, sorry, that's the word I was looking for. Those words escape me sometimes. That Jesus, look at the, the second half of that verse, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We saw the seven golden lampstands are the churches. They shine with the light of Christ. But let's recognize this. Jesus is walking among his churches. He stands in the middle, but he also goes among them. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation contain his words to his people as he sees them. Jesus stands in the midst, and he also walks within his churches. And he walks in there, remember, with eyes of fire to purify what he sees so the light of those lampstands shines the brightest. Shines with gospel light and life. Uh, Jesus' words are given to the angels of the churches. Uh, angels, we know from Scripture, are messengers. They're messengers sent on a mission by God to accomplish a task. And I think we conclude, and I think it's safe, we can't go too far down this road, but I think we conclude that each church has a guardian angel that God commissions to ensure the gospel is preserved and that the gospel is proclaimed in that church. I'm grateful for that because we know spiritual warfare is real. And we're, one day in heaven, we're going to recognize, maybe we'll meet the guardian angel over this church. And we'll hear stories of how that angel had to battle hell itself so we could hear the word and be changed. You know, it, it should affect how we come to church. And I think that's what the Ephesians Maybe we're missing. Maybe they didn't realize that there's way more going on that we can't see than what we're seeing. The letters that are written are written to the seven churches. And remember, uh, seven, guiding principle for numbers, quality, not quantity. Seven is just the representative of completeness. completeness. These weren't the only churches in Asia. There were many more, but they represent 
all the churches, which means the letters were for them. They're also for us. They're for the church and believers in every age. So they're for us to consider today, right now. And this word to the Ephesian church is for us to consider. Uh, Each of these letters has a particular structure that is a general structure that follows. Well, one, uh, the first element, the first category of these letters is there. There's an element of reference to Jesus and the vision that John captured, seeing him shining brightly, brighter than the sun. So there's the element of the vision of Jesus that Jesus that every church needs, and it's a different type of element. Then there's an encouragement that Jesus gives to the church. Then there's an, an exhortation, which incorporates a correction to the Ephesians. But this I have against you, but there's always a promise. You've heard me say this before, and I'll repeat it a lot. We know the devil's voice from God's voice because the devil's voice never has a promise associated with it. God's voice always comes with a promise. And Jesus is representing that here. It always comes with a promise. So let's think about the church. The church of Ephesus was the the fourth largest city of the Roman Empire. It had a strategic point. (laughs) Words today. I'm just too excited about the message, I guess. Uh, Strategic port with highways leading to and from Ephesus. It was a highly trafficked city uh, full of busy life. So, well, we kind of know what the Ephesians feel like, don't we? Ephesus was also home to the Temple of Artemis, uh, Greek goddess in Roman culture. She was called Diana. Uh, But the temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was five stories high. That's a lot. A hundred pillars. That's a significant feat back in the first century. In Roman culture, they celebrated temples. Uh, When you lived in a place that had a temple, it was civic pride. Kind of what... Maybe American cities might feel about a stadium. That's our stadium. I live where that cool stadium is. Uh, But this is even more because emperors would, they would allow cities that uh, were really devoted to them to build them a temple for, you know, Roman emperors thought they were gods and they would live forever and they needed temples too. And so they would grant this. Four different emperors gave Ephesus permission to build temples for them. This was, a, this was a bustling religious city. Uh, the temple of Artemis had over a thousand priests and priestesses, which meant there were close to a thousand prostitutes available for worship. The church and the believers in Ephesus knew the struggle in a, in a way maybe that we haven't comprehended yet. They knew the struggle to remain unstained from the world. They knew that. At the time of John's writing, which was in 96 AD, around that, Ephesus was the center of the Christian world. The, cent- the, the locus of Christianity was there. It started at Jerusalem, but because of persecution, it moved up to Antioch of Assyria, and then eventually to Ephesus, and it would move from Ephesus to Rome, which I wonder, did they not repent? And God moved their lampstand? I don't know. Just speculation. But this, this church has a serious spiritual lineage. 
the Apostle Paul founded the church with, remember, Priscilla and Aquila. They had a short visit from Apollos where they're helping Apollos see things. He was, a, he was an orator and he handled truth gloriously, majestically. Paul then, he leaves, he comes back for two years ministering in the church. He spent more time in Ephesus than he did with any other church that he planted. And when Paul was forced to leave, he sent Timothy to pastor and raise up elders there. First Timothy, the book of First Timothy, is written to Timothy while he's in Ephesus. Paul then wrote them from a Roman prison, which is the, our book of Ephesians. And church history tells us that Timothy was martyred in Ephesus by the Roman emperor Nerva, who I think was a Nervine, all dictators are. And they want to silence opposition through death. Uh, after Timothy... This is going to be a fun one for y'all. After Timothy's death, the Apostle John came to pastor the church. That's pretty cool, huh? Now, you know who he probably brought with him those early years? Mary, the mother of Jesus. How about that for a Christmas Eve service, huh? Mary. You want to play Mary? Got a baby for you. But look, this is where also John wrote his gospel account while he was in Ephesus. That's some serious spiritual lineage. And I think the church took, their, took this and understood this is a big deal. And we need, to, we need to steward what we have really well. And then comes Jesus' encouragement. Here's what the church is doing well. They're toiling. He says this, I know your works, your toil. These are labors for God. When we, when, when just work for God becomes a, a, the motivation and the, the driving passion to see his exaltation. And he says, I see your patient endurance. I see how you stand against evil and false teachers. Then he comes back and highlights a second time, I see your enduring patience. Now, oh, see what the, the Savior sees in them. And then they're bearing up. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. They are bearing up. They are strong for Jesus' exaltation, his preeminence. And then, which I'm kind of jealous of, they have not grown weary in their well-doing. We all grow weary. Jesus says, you haven't even grown weary in all your toil and your labor. And he adds later on that you have this also, you don't tolerate the Nicolaitans. Now, uh, these, we're, we'll find out more when we look at the letter to the church in Pergamum, because they were going after the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, but just for our purposes, the, the, the Ephesians are looking at that. The Nicolaitans taught, uh, and taught a theology that promoted compromise, spiritual compromise. So he says, you hate them, I hate them too. Now, the church, they took, they took their jobs as leaders in Christianity very seriously. And they were a pure church. 
They worked hard to maintain holiness. They made sure relationships were protected from impurity. They made sure the doctrine was sound. They made sure they created a spiritual community that Jesus would be proud of. And he was. These endeavors are righteous pursuits for every church. They were doing great at what Jesus wanted his church to be great at doing. And these encouragements are real. And they express the genuine heart of Jesus toward the Ephesians. And the the Ephesians should have felt great about them. And I think they were. Until the big but showed up. But. What a sinking feeling, right? But we, uh, well, we, we had this, Jesus, but I, I have this against you. There was a disconnect in how they were doing their hard work for Jesus. And then Jesus gives them the exhortation. Here's what they need. You know, and understand, Jesus did not give them this glowing report uh, to butter them up to the bad news. As if he's just like, all right, let me give some pleasantries in here because I really got some bad news. Let me give some pleasantries. You know, sometimes we're guilty of doing that uh, because we're afraid of delivering the bad news. Jesus really meant all the things he said. They really were doing things well. But there was a disconnect in how they were doing them. The fact that Jesus had something against them cut very deep. And we feel that. Because when, even when, we're reading, when we are reading this, we forget the good stuff that was going on. But this I have against you. Oh, it cancels everything out. And we have to be careful. Jesus isn't canceling out his, his encouragement to them. And listen, when Jesus comes to correct us, he doesn't cancel out the things we really are doing well. Now, in, we see that in our relationships. We see that when, when we feel that somebody else is not measuring up, we, we don't pay attention to encouragements anymore. No, we, that's the most important time to look for some encouragements. When we think, think that things aren't going well, we need to look for the evidences of God's grace showing up in order to, to trust that he really is there. Jesus, his words show up and cut deep because that's what his word does. It divides things. It separates things. Their works ultimately were not motivated by love for Jesus. They abandoned the love they had at first. They had abandoned their love for him. Maybe got worried about their performance for him. We got a lot of responsibility, so we need to make sure we're doing these things. The Ephesian syndrome is the trend to move away from our love for Jesus, our first love, as the motivation for living for him. And our head gets disconnected from our hearts, which means our service to one another and for God is weak. It might be there, but it's weak. It lacks power. When we move away from Jesus' love, we will inevitably seek the security of our own performance for him as the measure of our devotion. Do you hear that? If, if you're struggling today in your Christian life because you don't think you do enough for God, you have a love problem. You don't have a work problem. Because what we do is say, I just got to do more. I've got to do more. I've got to do more. I've got to do more. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That's a disconnect. We have to get our affections on him and, and let him capture our affections again. So the work that we do is motivated by his love, not by our performance. We go to performance because it's easier to measure. How do you measure your faith to go, to, toward God? 
Because we get looking in Scripture, well, I guess if I really have faith, I should be able to move mountains. Can't move mountains. Well, maybe I'll do something for Jesus, and maybe I'll feel better because I feel like I did something for him. You hear the disconnect? It's easier to measure performance. We don't know how to measure faith. Jesus just says, trust me. I think I am, but something feels off. When all we have is our performance, we, we will drift into spiritual malaise or complacency or drudgery. The church was doing the good work from their willpower, not from the Spirit's power. And we drift into performance just like the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees didn't have, I think when they started out, they really wanted to preserve this little group of Hebrews, because remember the history of Israel, they come out, they're, they're exiled because of their lack of faith. They were doing all the stuff and they had all the motions going. And Isaiah said, you know, your honor, God said through Isaiah, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And Jesus used that exact quote toward the Pharisees. When they started out, they wanted to preserve their devotion. So they said, we just need to make sure we're never going to sin. So we don't have an exile again. I think the heart was right in that moment, but what it became was more and more and more rules. And when you get more and more rules, oh man, you just have to get more rules so you, don't, so you obey the other rules that you came up with. And that's what Jesus said. Right did Isaiah prophesy over you. Your lips honor me, but your heart far from me. Thinking that in the commandments, you have security, not in faith. Why do we abandon our first love? I think we turn when something robs our joy, when the thrill is gone. When living for God just isn't thrilling. How does that happen? Unanswered prayer will do it. When we pray and labor in our prayers and we, we put all of our thrust into God and he just doesn't come through like we thought, or he just simply says, no. We don't even hear a wait in that moment. We just hear God say, no. That'll rob joy, doesn't it? Relational breakdown robs our joy. When things are going so well and all of a sudden something happens. And it's just off and different. Sin robs joy. Either our own sin or somebody else's sin against us just robs our joy. Things aren't thrilling anymore. And they, why, why continue? Why do this? Unfulfilled dreams. Maybe you believe something, God gave you something years ago and you're just struggling it. A dream, a vision for what he called you to live out in your life and it's just never coming to pass and you watch year after year after year go by and you think, is that ever going to happen? God, did you, did you set me up or something? Unmet expectations. We have expectations or people in our lives say they're going to do something and it never comes through. It's just unmet expectations. We have our own expectations. We see what godly living should be like and we don't reach it. Or we see what godly, godly living should be about and people that we're connected to don't own it the same way. It's like, what, what's happening? These things rob joy. How about a burden that just won't lift? 
about a physical burden that just remains, chronic illness, about emotional burdens that won't lift, grief just won't lift, spiritual burdens, carrying lost loved ones and children on your heart constantly. They rob joy, don't they? And then we sit there and go, is this worth it? Is it worth it? But we still show up. We're going to show up. We're going to do it because that's all, maybe all we know to do. I've just done this so much. I'm just going to show up. And, and now it's, I think it's generational. The younger generations is like, I'm not even showing up anymore because I don't see God at work at all. So what's the use? How about loneliness? Loneliness will rob your joy. Uh, particularly this, when you feel like you're the only one left in church standing for something. You're maybe the only one that you know about that's fighting for holiness and standing for righteousness. And you see compromise happening in other people. And you're just thinking, why? Why don't you, don't you like, you think of Lot tormenting his righteous soul in Sodom and Gomorrah and you ache. There's loneliness. In my own, I'm the only one. When you look around the church, am I the only one to serve in this? Am I the only one stepping up? It gets lonely when we look around us rather than above us. Where we are told in Colossians 3 to set our minds and seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated there in all authority. See, when our joy is robbed... We will go into control mode and live out of our self-protection and live out of our self-preservation more than we're living out of a love motivation because Jesus is our everything. We will struggle with faith that puts everything on Jesus no matter the outcome. We reserve something. We protect our prayers. We don't want to give God everything and ask for everything like we have because he just doesn't come through. So we preserve and protect. How do we regain the joy? Jesus tells us. He gives us the way back to passion. He first says, remember. We should be remembering all the time. Remember, remember that moment right now when you first came to Christ. Remember that moment right now. Remember it. And everything was new and exciting. And reading the word every day was the most important thing and the most satisfying thing. And you just got to it all the time. Remember those days when fellowship with other believers was so frequent that your family was, you were at church so much, your family was concerned. Like you're at church a lot. What's going on? Something's wrong. Remember those days? Remember those days when you promised God, that you would do anything at church. You'd serve in any way just because you love being there. Jesus says, remember that. Because those are the works you did at first. But then he says this very crucial thing. Repent. Jesus is strong about his desire for his children's love to be so intertwined with him. that he says, repent of the things you've been going after. Repent of complacency, repent of drudgery, repent of malaise. See, no matter how far we feel from God, we're only one turn away. Because he's right with us the whole time. 
we think we're leaving him, Jesus walks among his church. He knows where we are. He sees us with those eyes. Maybe we're trying to, we're doing the, I can't see you, Jesus, so you must not be able to see me. This goofy thing we try in our lives as if God's going to not pay attention. Oh, I don't see you doing your thing. You know what? In our repentance, you know, repenting is we're going in a direction. We stop. We acknowledge, Jesus, I am sorry for pursuing this. That's only half of repentance. The other half is this. We turn. And Jesus is right there. He links arms up with us and we begin walking in the other direction. That's what repentance looks like. So in that moment when you turn to Jesus, what does that repentance conversation with Jesus sound like? What does it look like? I would say this. Tell him how you think he didn't show up. Tell him that you're mad at him. I'm mad that this happened, God. I'm mad and I don't know what to do with it. And rather than come to you with it, I've been trying to keep it in, trying to figure out how I need to fix it myself before I come to you, rather than saying, God, I've just been mad. I, I know I have no reason to. I know I'm wrong, but it's just how I feel, God. I, I, I just, I'm just mad. I've got these unfulfilled dreams, these unmet expectations, these burdens. I'm lonely, God, I'm lonely. What do I do? Tell him of your dashed dreams that you're still holding on to. Repent to restore your light. Repent to restore your joy. The church in Ephesus needed to look at Jesus again, who holds the seven stars. It's unique that Jesus gives them that image, that element of the vision. I hold the seven stars because what they began to do was take control away from Jesus and put it in their own lives. So all of their relationships with people and the church began to be controllable and manageable. And Jesus is reminding them, I hold all that. I'm in control. You're your responsibility is to trust me. Your responsibility is to come to me and present yourself to me and trust me. They needed to repent of their effort to control things. We need to hear the same thing, church. We need to repent to God because our relating with him has been more about what we think he owes us rather than all he's done for us. And when we do that, we try to control our, our relationship with him and our prayers sound like, God, we really need you to control things in our lives so our lives go better. We can't control him. He's too powerful. And look, he's right and righteous in his power and in his control. He holds the seven stars. He holds the universe in his hand. He's got you. He's got us. No matter how confusing, no matter how frustrating, no matter how irritated we are with life, he holds us. And he wants the light of the gospel to shine in us. And he says, do the works you did at first. Return. Redo these things. I love that God is the God of the redo. He says, all right, let's reset this. Do it. Now do it faithfully. Do it well. We don't cancel ourselves out. We don't cancel out our walks with God. When, when our walks with God lack love, our relationships will lack love as well. Give God your time again. Give God your passion and your affections. Give God your service to the kingdom. Return without stipulation. All right, God, I'm coming back to you, but I'm really expecting all these things to take place again. 
Now, come without stipulation, but also come without regret. God, I'm sorry that I've been stubborn again. But thank you that your love for me is as if this is the first time I've repented. Because that's the joy that returns when we see Jesus. And we say, Jesus, I just want to love you. I want to hear you say you love me, and I want to feel your love. And that's it. And we watch what happens when our love is set right. Jesus told the church that they, he would, if they didn't repent, he'd remove the lampstand from the place. But notice, they had light. They had light. And they were to steward that light. How? Just love me, Jesus. Just love me first. Love me. Love me supremely. Love me faithfully. Love me passionately. Love me without trying to figure out what I'm doing. Just love me. They have, they have what Jesus is calling them to walk out. And they, they would present themselves in surrender to walk out that light. And then Jesus gives a glorious promise. This is where the church needs to look. Jesus first says, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear. You know, he says that so many times with his parables and his ministry in the, in the, the gospel accounts. Let hear who has an ear, let him hear. Let it sink down to the affections, not in, ear one out, uh, in one ear out the other. Let it sink down to the base of our affections and respond. Respond by obeying Jesus, doing this, not doing something, loving him, loving him. Love him with all your heart. Love him with all your soul. Love him with all your strength and live out the life that he's given you. You have the light of life. Live it out. Don't, don't confuse it. Don't try to add things to it. Live out the life that you have in Christ. Mature in it. It's not something, go get a light and try to put it in you. No, you have that light as a believer in Christ. Live it out. How do we do that? We present ourselves. We trust him. And we do this crazy cooperation thing where it's, Philippians 2 tells us, and Paul tells the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and work for his good pleasure. What's that look like? I don't know. I'm supposed to do something. He's doing something. Yes. We walk. He works. We walk. He works. We walk. He works. And then he says to the one who conquers. Now remember, we have that. We are more than conquerors through Christ. We're told in the New Testament. So eternal life, this conquering is eternal life is secure in Christ. And the fruit, the fruit of our eternal life is eating the fruit of the tree of life. What's being promised by Jesus is this. Look, you're doing a great job, church, standing for truth. You're doing a great job of identifying false teaching. You're doing a great job of preserving your lives with purity and holiness. You're doing a great job of making sure that sound doctrine is what is preached. Great job. But don't miss this. 
The whole purpose of it is to be joined to his presence. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. There's love that abounds in his presence. And the tree of life is a symbol. We're going to see this in, at the end of Revelation. The tree of life is there. And those who get to eat of the tree of life, it's the evidence that we already have the life. And we rejoined what, we, what was lost at Eden is finally regained and reconnected. Head and heart reconnected, so to speak. But our eating of that fruit It's a cool tree. Bears fruit every month. And I think it's a different fruit every month. It's a cool tree. Very cool tree. That's a physical manifestation of what is taking place on the inside of us. We have life. And we are to demonstrate that life. But we are to do it this way. By hearing our Savior say, I love you. But, no, he gets to say the buts. We don't. We receive. We receive it. So what does this mean for us? Psalm 51, 12 came to mind for our prayer. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God's willing. He's willing. And we come to him and say, God, I just, I just want to love you. That's, that's what I want. I just want to love you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would please instruct our hearts in this quiet moment with you when you come to us with stillness. Holy Spirit, I trust you have you've answered our prayer earlier to give us illumination, to give us understanding. But Holy Spirit, there's also the gift of conviction that we ask for. Are we really in love with you? Or are we going through motions? Father, I ask that you would please lift burdens. Remind us you are with us to cure loneliness. I pray that we would surrender our dreams and expectations. Surrender our, the, the, the desire we have for prayers to be answered. God, we don't want to cling to our performance. We want to know your love. So right now, Lord, we repent. We repent of all the things that we have done that have not been by faith. We repent of looking around us more than we're looking above us. Lord, we repent. And Lord, please, restore our joy. Restore it as we feel the embrace, the the loving embrace of our Savior. And may we, may we learn to just sit with you and feel that love. And may it breed in us and build in us an excitement like the first time we felt new life. 
And we gave all the time that we needed. And we gave you all of our affections that we had. And everything that we did was because we loved you. God, we love you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your promise to bring us back to yourself. We love you, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, here, different, different type of commission today. This is Isaiah 55, verse 12. For you shall go out in joy. This is a promise. And God guarantees his promises. You shall go out with joy.